You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today I have two special guests, the authors of an amazing new book called Is This Yoga? Um, Concepts, Histories, and the Complexities of Modern Practice. Um, this book is... Uh, one of the most amazing books on yoga that you'll ever read. Like as I just told them off off air, this book will will really stand the test of time. People will be reading this book in a hundred years because it talks. It goes into the details of the history and the literature that backs up what yoga is today and where it came from, which is quite amazing. We're lucky to have Dr. Krista Kuberi. Krista, welcome. She's a PhD teacher of uh, yoga at the university level. Uh, she's been practicing yoga for 25 years and currently she's the uh, vice president of standards at the Yoga Alliance, which is an amazing governing body for standards throughout the world for yoga practice. And then Anya, Anya Foxen, she's also a PhD. Uh, welcome, Anya. Um, she's a historian studying yoga and spirituality. She's also written two books prior to this one, called one called Inhaling Spirit, the other one, Biography of a Yogi, and uh, she currently teaches at the California Polytech University in San Luis Obispo, California. Two brilliant religious yoga scholars. Um, you know, I think in, in the world that you guys live in, um, which is kind of religious studies, right? Um, it's really kind of a whole new venture to kind of be talking, bringing yoga into that discussion. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I would say it's fairly accurate. Mm -hmm. We are both very much, I remember we met in the world of scholarship um, in, in academia at conferences. And I remember around the time we met, people would be like, well, what do you do? And I'd be like, I'm a yoga scholar. And they'd be like, those don't exist. <laughs> like, well, you're looking at one. So it is a fairly nascent field in terms of, especially looking at the, the modern side mm -hmm. of yoga. I would say. Yeah, I think especially that because I mean, to some extent, you know, people had been studying yoga philosophy, right? And like, just kind of through that lens, not for a super long time. I mean, I think the field overall, like you said, is still very much in its nascency. Um, but modern yoga in particular, right? It's just like, nobody even thought to take that seriously until, you know, maybe when Elizabeth D. Michaelis came out with her book on modern yoga in 2004, which feels like a while ago now, but you know, in the lifetime of an academic field, that's really nothing um and it's yeah it's really just grown so much just even in the last decade that mm -hmm. it's it's really cool to yeah kind of get to be part of that yeah it is it's really fun it's also very interesting because yeah. there's so much to explore <laughs> were you guys surprised when you started digging into the to the to the literature of yoga to see how much there was and how diverse it is and and um you know i just wonder what the goal of well there's so many questions i have to you number one was the goal of going into writing this book and now that you have this encyclopedia of yoga really that should be you know a, a, an accredited college course that probably would take four years to go through i mean really you couldn't do this in a semester right so what's the what's the are you gonna are you gonna teach uh, based on this book it's like a textbook it, it is a textbook mm -hmm. and it is very much the, I guess to answer both parts of the question, some ways the reason that we wrote this book is we both got into being scholars of this because we were practitioners of yoga and neither of us are able to just, you know, <laughs> be surface or not really question things. So instead of just being like, oh, I'm practicing yoga, we both ended up with PhDs in it. Um, so, you know, that was that original intention. And then <clears throat> I, as a yoga teacher, as well as an academic, was often approached asking for like, well, what, do, what am I supposed to teach my students and what mm -hmm. can they read? And there's a lot of different little pieces that people were having to put together to create this sort of narrative arc. Um, and so I think both of us separately were asked multiple times to write this book, mm -hmm. but really it made the most sense for us to write it together based on really, I mean, together 40 years of, of <laughs> research. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, to some extent, like, it's through an academic publisher, it's sort of it, it was pitched as, you know, kind of an academic textbook. Um, and it is that right and you can kind of you can teach the whole thing. 
Um, or we were also, you know, because we did have professor friends approaching us and being like, well, I'm just doing maybe a couple of days on yoga in this larger class that I'm teaching. And, you know, what can I give to my students that will give them sort of a sense of the philosophy or a sense of the history or a sense of like, yeah, but like some of the modern issues, mm -hmm. right, that people end up dealing with. And so our hope was also that, you know, they could kind of take individual chapters and just use them that way. But I mean, I think for both of us, a huge piece of it was that it's for practitioners, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it's for people, it's for students in that broader sense of, of the term who, like us, are sort of doing this stuff and are asking these questions of like, well, what is it? Mm -hmm. um, and what is it? What isn't it? Why is it? Um, you know, yeah, and really just acknowledging that sort of mm -hmm. diversity of what it could be. Right. Rigor and no. access, yeah, mm -hmm. I think is really what we were going with. Like, it's really complex, but we also <laughs> want to write something that's accessible for a variety of people to be able to read and take something from. Mm -hmm. I think um, you guys have, uh, you know, discovered sort of what I discovered when I trained when I trained in India, where, you know, in the south of India, nobody's potatoes in the north, nobody's garlic or onions, you know, and, and everything changes based on who you're learning from and, mm -hmm. and what geographical area you're at. And there was a lot of discrepancies and people say, oh, well, they don't know what they're talking about. The one says potatoes are good, one says potatoes are bad. You know, how can this, any of this be true? And you know, you, you, you cover a lot of that in the book and how, how about the discrepancies and you go into such great detail. Um, you know, um, is that something that you found you know, as well, that it was, how did you weave? That's the amazing thing about this book. You wove in you know, this incredible, like some people can look at this, this is crazy, it doesn't make any sense, but you somehow made sense of these, these opposite, you know, points of view in, in some cases. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> it looked hard. I mean, yeah, that's why I yeah. said this book, this book will, let, will last the test of time. It's really such an incredible work, what you did here, you know, and, and for yoga teachers who want to know what they're actually doing, um, you know, <clears throat> this is a book that you would read you'd put it on your night table and you'd read it for the rest of your life. You'd always want to pick it up and dig a little bit deeper, you know? Um, That's the hope, right? The jumping yeah. off point, really. We wanted to, to show that, like, there's so much here that you could spend lifetimes looking at mm -hmm. it. And at the same time, isn't it neat that there's all of these different directions, but there's these interconnections and there's ways in which we can offer spaces for students to be like, oh, I like that concept. Mm -hmm. Or I like, that's an interesting historical piece that I didn't understand. Or, oh, here's the women, or here's gurus, or you know, here's what's going on with neoliberalism. So really thinking about all of that. And then like you said, trying to make it actually make sense. Yeah. Well, and I think to me, like the, the way that I began to like just really wrap my head around it and make sense of it was I think we say this in the book at some point it's like you know like like yes cultures are different and cultures are different between one another and are different internally right but like like also people are people right and so like if we kind of think about how diverse like even just the U.S. is today right and how we have all of these differences regionally in terms of cuisine in terms of culture in terms of all sorts of stuff um and you know like you john were saying in india right it's like like what is the deal with potatoes <laughs> right and like people will tell you literally just like conflicting things based on who you ask it's always like that and it's always been like that and it's like that kind of with everything because human beings are these like complex messy creatures that disagree about stuff um, and I think like kind of like reconciling myself with the fact that like that's how yoga is too because yoga is practiced by people mm -hmm. <laughs> like that kind of made it you know even though it's still messy it made it kind of intuitively make sense a little bit better right like of course it's messy and it doesn't all need to like agree mm -hmm. in order to be able to tell some kind of story about it and in order for the context to be important I think is another piece mm -hmm. right in order for us to still take the time to look at the history and to really understand why and where and what those people were doing in this socio-historical context versus what the heck we're doing in you know Denver Boulder Colorado today right mm -hmm. different and in the same way of Ayurveda I'm sure that you have looked at that you know in the ways in which it's being reinterpreted and thought about um, regionally in India and even today, you know, as a practice as well as what people are doing with that. Mm -hmm. Well, that exactly. I think maybe, you know, digging into some of the details, I think one of the, our, our audience here is, you know, what we write about here at Life Spa's ancient kind of medical wisdom of Ayurveda and modern science. My philosophy is if you can find a practice that's been around for hundreds or thousands of years, still around today, something worth looking at. 
And if you can find science to back it up, something that we should all at least look at. Doesn't mean it's gospel, but it but it's worth really taking a look at. And uh, and that brings the question, you know, Ayurveda has always been called the sister science of Ayurveda. I don't even know if anybody really knows what that means, but if there's anybody who knows, I would imagine you guys do. And that's probably the, the question that our audience is really, you know, really wants to dig into is how do these two systems connect? Mm. Yeah, and this, I mean, we address that a little bit in the book, right? Because I mean, frankly, I, you can't say that anybody really knows what we mean by that when we when we say they're sister sciences. Um, and some of it is because the history is complicated, right? Anytime you're dealing with ancient history, it's like, well, you can sort of make an educated guess as to how this all came to pass. But still, like, you're kind of limited by the fact that some of it came to pass 2000 years ago. Um, so I guess I'm more the historical piece of this, and then Krista can kind of talk to like what it what it means today. Um, but from the historical angle, you know, I'd say that it's really helpful to think about kind of how um, spirituality and therapy might intersect in general. Um, like spirituality is always still embodied, right? Even when we're talking about kind of spiritual liberation and mystical states and all this kind of stuff, it's still happening within the body. It still relies on, you know, our understandings of how the body works, how everything is put together, what the different components of a person are, whether that's, you know, body or mind or spirit or whatever. Um, and so if you kind of look at the intersection between yoga practices and systems of, of medicine of Ayurveda in the pre-modern period, that is sort of the relationship. It's like one informs the other. Even when you have people that are engaging in yogic practice for the sake of you know, moksha liberation, right? And they might ultimately even be looking to disengage from the body at the end of it. Um, their understanding of the body is still informed by Ayurveda, which is kind of the medical science of the day. Um, and certainly within yogic systems where the body is a vehicle, um, then kind of care of the body, right? And, and, and sort of keeping the body not only healthy, but really kind of optimizing uh, how it is that the body is able to work for us becomes really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, and so scholars will kind of argue like, okay, so to what extent are these, are these truly sister sciences? And so they're meant to be kind of, if not overlapping, at least complementary systems, or, you know, maybe these are actually systems that were in competition uh, to some extent. Right, because on the one hand, you have you know folks that would have been really kind of more on the Ayurveda side that were like, okay, like well, we do medicine, right, and like so you have to do X, Y, and Z, and you do these therapies, and then on the other hand, you have these yogis that are like, wow, but you know, like like yoga does that and more, mm -hmm. so you know why don't you come to me and I'll tell you what's what. So I, I mean, you know, it's kind of like the way that medicine works today. There's a certain amount of disagreement, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, yeah, people argue, right, historically what this would have looked like, but. Krista, before you chime in on that, on the modern side, you know, I, I, I wanna share with you uh, kind of my take on, on the definition of Ayurveda, Ayur's life, and Veda means truth, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, a lot of people call Ayurveda the science of life. How to live your life in sync with the natural rhythm, seasonal cycles, daily cycles, going in flow and in harmony. Um, but that, but my, that's one definition. That's sort of the nuts and bolts of Ayurveda, how to stay in healthy. But the other definition that I like even more, which I think which really makes it a Vedic science, is that Ayu is life, Veda is truth, which means the truth of your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there's one common denominator that you wrote about in your book, again, throughout the entire book, was this idea that, you know, consciousness, you know, uh, yokes with with matter, you know, you know, the, the the consciousness and physiology and how all these are really the whole goal of yoga somehow, at least that's the thing that I the, the thread that I saw woven throughout the book was, was that the whole point of this is to bridge something very, very physical with something very, very spiritual. Mm -hmm. And that was, there's a lot of yoking going on in your book, uh, uh, you know, and um, so I think from that perspective, you know, Ayurveda does stand, you know, like the lamp at the door, shining one side of the light at into the, uh, you know, into the physiology, keeping it healthy, and the other side into, you know, the spiritual world, because the goal, I believe that the whole point of the human body is it's an instrument that Ayurveda gave us insights how to, how to, how to refine it, 
how to mm -hmm. fine tune it so it can be able to perceive higher levels of spiritual energy and become somewhat of a realized passenger on this journey of the soul, as opposed to just being a body going through making money, making a living, and then growing old mm -hmm. and die. As we get older, these cycles, we actually have the ability to, uh, to refine our perception. And that's what we're hardwired to do. We lose the interest in the material world. We start becoming more, you know, inspired and passionate about something more spiritual. And, and that's where I really believe that the, the bridge between yoga and Ayurveda really, really start to happen. Ayurveda can take you only so far in the spiritual world where, where yoga is, all, well, not all about that, but from my perspective, it's, you know, again, it's very physical, but, you know, like I said in your book, the common denominator seems that this is about taking this thing to, uh, you know, this awareness to another level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think exactly. And I think it is, it goes back to with everything, I think, and what is the intention of, of what's going on there, right? So, you know, historically thinking of what was going on in an ascetic yoga practice where they're escaping the body is a very different intention of what yoga and Ayurveda would be than what you get in like the medieval period, the more tantric hatha, where there is this sort of integrative understanding of the body and making the body strong and where that would become more of a integrative sister science, if you will, mm -hmm. in a different way. And then you get the modern, modern period and you get the modern medical fields and the integrative systems of health and the idea of yoga therapy. And, you know, how does Ayurveda fit into that space as yoga as a therapeutic model with a Western framework and notions of intake and assessment which is a very different thing than we're talking about that the, you know, sort of thousands of years ago when you had the medical mod model versus the spiritual model and how were those being, you know, overlapped or overlaid on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So it's all fascinating. So you can <laughs> say they're sisters or you can say, you know, and they're like sisters and sometimes they're friends and sometimes they fight. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the only <laughs> way of putting it actually. As someone who has a sister. <laughs> yeah. Let's say they're in a relationship. Yeah, right. <laughs> All yeah. relationships are complicated. And there's ups and downs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, gosh, you, now after writing this book and you understand the history, which was so diverse and so deep and so diverse, what are you, what's your takeaway? Like for with when you look at yoga now, um, and like you said, Krista, you know the modern look at yoga is so much different. You know, just the eight limbs of the Sangha Yoga. You know, how is that different today than it was when it was originally, you know, described by Patanjali, right? Mm -hmm. well, I mean, very how, different. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, we were actually just, yeah. when we were talking about just, you know, coming on here, we had this very quick conversation just about, you know, just looking at Patanjali and oftentimes, especially in yoga teacher trainings today, people take Patanjali's yoga sutras and they'll be like, this is the prescriptive model of yoga that we're going to follow. However, if you know more about the history of Patanjali or the philosophical background around that, you know, he really wasn't the body positive. You're going to get this great, you know, be healthy and look healthy in your body idea. It was about escaping the body and, you know, stopping the fluctuations of the mind and not being part of this material, you know, experience at all, but only being existent in that transcendent space. Whereas, you know, then you get in the more modern way where we're in that people are like, no, 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 I want to like look good and feel good, but I want something to follow some sort of something that's going to tell me how I should live my life. Right. And so yeah. go ahead. That perspective you just said, you guys are, you have so much to talk about. So I'm going to stop you when I want to, when I want to dive into that, this perspective of like losing the body was basically so they didn't have any karma, right? Because they were afraid of karma. Exactly. And if you Right. So talk about karma a little bit from that perspective. And then what we look at, how we look at karma today would be, I'd love to dive into that. Yeah. I mean, from their perspective, it was really like escaping this birth and death and rebirth cycle. Right. And so the idea, the more that you, especially then they were experimenting with, well, if you remove yourself completely from society and you become an ascetic and then you remove yourself from the desires of that, right. And you live completely separate, then you won't get any more karma, you'll burn off the karma through this practices of asceticism or even practices of Ayurveda in some ways mm -hmm. of the fires and those ideas, right? And then you would be liberated and, and not have to be reborn again, right? And that is a very different concept, not only in the sense of like we live in the West and we live in a Christian sort of 
framework of teleological existence or linear existence where it's like birth, death, heaven. We don't really have the reincarnation thing from a karmic perspective in the first place. And then it's more in the sense of, especially, and I'd say, and you can chime in on this too, obviously, Anya, from our perspective on karma, you know, it's like, we think of in the West, like instant karma, right? Like, oh, you know, you did this. And so this is going to happen. But it's like, no, it's from a way more subtle experience if we think about it all the way back from philosophy of like, not only is your karma like, yeah, you were a jerk and so that person is going to get something bad happen to them. It's like, no, literally the fluctuation of your thought that created a vibration or a ripple effect in the universe will at some time be collected upon. And it Mm -hmm. might be in this lifetime or a different lifetime, but you better be aware of that, which I think is a very different idea of like, you should be of service. And like, mm-hmm. you know, actions have consequences. Yes, but it's even more deep than that, yeah. I would say. And it's not even, it's not purely moral, right? I right. mean, karma is, it's a mechanical kind of thing. It, it's literally, you know, I mean, it's like gravity. If it goes up, it must come down. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Um, and so, I, you know, the way I explain it to my students is like, if you think about the way that ascetic yoga practices work, including kind of what's going on with Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras, right? I mean, it's actually a very, it's the simplest logical response to this belief that like there is some state beyond the cycle of, of rebirth. And the thing that keeps us out of that state, that thing that keeps us trapped in the material world is this like kind of continued right like if I keep acting the world is going to keep reacting Mm -hmm. at me and so therefore I'm never going to get out of that cycle so I mean if that's the problem right then of course like the most basic solution is we'll stop acting right like just stop it and then you're fine right but of course that also means like well no it's not just you can't move stop thinking yeah stop thinking yeah no thoughts (laughs) And so it is, I mean, it's just a very different kind of system than even some of the contemporary systems that you would have had in India and the ancient world, um, certainly medieval India, once you get these kind of more tantric kind of world positive mm-hmm. um, systems where like, well, the body and the world aren't necessarily kind of a negative thing. Um, so the idea of Jiva Mukti, for instance, right, liberation while embodied. Um, is has a different understanding of what it means to sort of break through the cycle of, of karma. Um, and I think through there, maybe we see a more natural progression to the kind of stuff that we still find. Right. And the intention of immortality, right? Like yeah. their intention wasn't necessarily to be reborn again. They were just going to become immortal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this idea, this kind of like, like, kind of more getting to the idea of, you know, it's not that you have to stop acting. It's that maybe you have to act with detachment, right? right, right equanimity right. and like, like, so, so do your, do your dharma, right? Not caring about the karma. Um, do, do what you need to do uh, for others, right? Act ethically as a member of society. Um, and then like your karma will kind of take care of itself because you're, you know, existing in this sort of harmonious state with the world around you. Um, so yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> oh, tons there. So what you're saying is it didn't really work out so well for the guys who just like stopped acting to avoid <laughs> the impact of karma. Well, maybe so it did. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, we still, we find like monks still, you know, almost mummified. We're and still trying to, right? So maybe, but I mean, it's not really that practical necessarily for the world that we live in for that many people to be able to just. So it depends on what your goal is and what your priorities are, right? Like, I mean, it, it, again, you you know, kind of brought up like the Christian, like Western perspective. Well, like in Christianity too, right? Like not everybody's going to go become a monk or a nun, um, and it doesn't mean that people aren't like devout practitioners. It just means they have a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's like, that's actually a pretty good analogy, right? Like, like everybody's path looks a little bit different. Are you seeing the level of extremity, extreme, you know, extreme behavior like these monks who were just checked out of everything in life to, to break the cycle of karma today that you, that, you, that you wrote about from thousands of years ago? In other words, did we slowly start to become, like you said, world positive, like thinking maybe the world's not so bad. Maybe we can figure out a way to interact with this world without incurring the karma. I mean, I think 
you still have both, right? Certainly ascetic okay. traditions still exist, uh, well, the world over, but you know, if we're talking about yoga in particular in India, mm-hmm. um, there's scholars doing really awesome work on like kind of modern day ascetics, uh, like Daniela Bivalacqua. Uh, yeah, she's great. You know, she kind of, she's gone and actually like talked to some of these ascetics, like, well, you know, these concepts that we're familiar with in modern yoga, like how do you understand that? Um, and, and sometimes there's definitely continuity with how yeah. kind of postural modern yoga practitioners do this stuff. Um, but sometimes actually their understanding is very different um, because they are more on this kind of, you know, like the ascetic path um, of, of not necessarily completely denying the body, um, but, you know, kind of using the body in particular ways, disciplining the body in particular ways um, to achieve what their goals are, which, you know, are not going to be the goals of a middle-class American woman practicing yoga in the, you know, in the West. Yeah. And I mean, I would say they're a small, they're much smaller population than you get the, like the global sort of transnational Mm -hmm. yogi, um, which is an interesting ways that like our sort of understanding of yoga has also then, you know, been understood or transacted with or changed the ways that people in South Asia in some ways practice today um, yoga or even the goals and outcomes and intentions of why they're practicing yoga. So it's an ever moving target, which I think is why it's really fun to study. And, you know, same, same with like Ayurveda as well as not only is it something that you can study academically, you can find texts, but then you also can experiment with your own body and you can, you know, think about this practice as really living and embodied, which Mm -hmm. I think is, um, not everybody gets that, gets to do that. So I feel very, very grateful. (laughs) Well, my take on karma is that, you know, it's become such a negative thing. Like, like you said before, it's your karma, bad karma, you're in right. big trouble, you know, and it's such a negative. And, and there's an old saying that I want one of my favorites, which is the, to the extent that something or someone affects you is to the extent that it's your karma, which means action, right? Mm-hmm. Which means therefore opportunity to take transformational action and free yourself from an emotional block that's keeping you from letting who you truly are out. So when you said, you know, the, the, you know, the energy you put out there from a lifetime or two ago, at some point it's going to come back and you're going to have to kind of revisit the ripple in the water, right? And you're going to have to deal with that. And I try to look at it as an opportunity as opposed to this negative bad karma. I hate the word bad karma, you know, because it just makes people think, well, I guess my life is just sucks. And therefore, you know, it's just, just going to be bad because I have yeah. bad karma. Because when I was, The victim you know, mentality young, of karma. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's terrible. It's a terrible concept, but it's very real. People just think, well, it's just my karma. So therefore I'm going to live this terrible karma out and go crazy and go wild and be bad. And never, never try to, you know, to, to find the truth of, of their, of their essence, which is to be loving, giving and kind and, and all that sattvic stuff that's been well studied scientifically to promote all types of health benefits um so that's kind of my take and and i and i wonder did that ever show up that idea that karma is an opportunity or is it always sort of like just yeah, a bad you can gain positive karma it's called mm-hmm. punya so it's like that's not just the idea that you have to burn away the bad karma it's also the idea of how you are in service to and the gaining of karma from that so it's like not just your negative actions have consequences, but so do your positive, right? And so I think of like somebody like, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's like, walk around with a soft smile on your face because even a smile has karmic intentions, right? Because that sort of moment, you're gonna mirror neuron with that other person and your, you know, positiveness is gonna rub off on them, that energetic or that karma, you can use what the word you want to there. Or if I'm like walking around with a really negative, you know, face and I look at somebody and they, they take it personally because they made their own story because humans make up stories, right? Then mm-hmm. they, you know, there's a transfer effect to that too. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, positive karma. I'm all for promoting positive karma too. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's helpful to remember that karma really just does mean action. Action and energy, yeah. Right? Like, we treat it as though it's a sort of, like, hyper-mystical, like, term and concept. But, I mean, if we actually think about the implications of that concept for how we understand the world today, right? I mean, we can kind of, like, naturalize it to the way that we think about our world in a lot of ways. I mean, we could talk about, you know, kind of social justice and these, like, structures that we all exist within and, like, how all that affects us, right? 
and how we act and react within it and, mm -hmm. and for it and against it. We could talk about like epigenetics, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, you know, like intergenerational trauma and how that's carried, but also the good stuff that we receive, right? The love and the, like all that stuff that we sort of carry with us um, that keeps us going that we hopefully pass on to others. Like all of that is karma, right? If we really sort of think about the implications of what that concept actually is for us. Um, and so I think that, yeah, for sure, right? Like there's ways to kind of think about it in more, mm -hmm. I don't know, affirming ways maybe, right? Rather than just always getting down about like, oh, well, the bad karma. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same way, right? You could yeah. think about like, well, the oppression, right? Well, sure, yes, of course, that's important. Um, and it's important that we acknowledge, right? Like, well, what are we gonna do? What is the yeah, action? Then what? Yeah, exactly. then what? what is the action based on the reaction, right? And then I think yoga helps with figuring out like you have a choice and how you react and then therefore the actions that follow from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yoga, you know, um, it sort of pulls back the bow and uh, there's a one of the Vedas is called Donner Ved, right? The, the Veda of transformation. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times misinterpreted as just the warring Veda, how to kill people and fight in battle. But, you know, like the Mahabharata, most of these battles are really, you know, uh, metaphors for what's happening inside our own head. And the battle we fight against truth and non-truth. And uh, the Donner Ved, the, you know, is kind of the, the, the Veda of the bow, where you pull back the bow. And if your mind is going like this, crazy, moving around a million places, you're never going to find the arrow, let alone hit anything. But if you pull back the bow and establish being, which is what the Gita says, right? Establish being and then perform action. And you hold it and you take action from that place. You become more self-aware at that level of your own being. And there you sort of get ahead of the karmic curve. You get to pick the fruit before it falls. You get to see the karmic as an underlying impression. Then you take action to free yourself from that karma before it builds up and you have a bunch of rotten fruit on the ground that you have to walk. You follow and me? So the whole point, yeah. Right. Yeah. The whole point is to pull back the bow, become more self-aware, become more self-aware of the of the underlying patterns of emotional behavior that that may have served you as a child, but don't serve you today. And then like you feel like people feel depressed or oppressed, but they can then take action now, from a level of consciousness, non-attachment and take action to free themselves from that pattern. To me, that's the model of karma that I really believe in. It's like it's the action that we can take. It's not the oh boy, I got bad karma. It's the action we can take to free ourselves and to raise the vibration of this instrument and then take our thought levels to a higher level, which then can be carried to other people. Because when you love and give and care to another, they feel safe enough to open their heart and love and give and care back, right? You judge someone, they feel judged, they wall themselves off, they create you know, thorns and armor, and you never even know who they are. And they just end up, you know, producing more thorns that cut you when you touch them. And, and the whole point of karma is to take action. And I, my, and I, and I, I love for you guys to tell me this is stupid, John, you're crazy. But because, but I really believe that that's what I work with patients for all these years. That's what I try to get them to do is get ahead of that curve. So they're not getting clobbered by this negative, these negative impressions that are coming down the pike. How do you get underneath them? and take proactive yeah. action. Well, that's the, that's the practice, right? Well, of karma like, yoga, right? Karma yoga and self-reflexivity, right? Like the idea of, okay, maybe I don't have a choice of what is happening to me, but I always have a choice of how I react to that. And those, right. that reaction, the action that I have from that reaction has ripple effects. So as mm -hmm. you said, it can be positive or negative, or it can be neutral, but regardless, it's going to have some sort of effect, right? And so the more you can get ahead of the idea of like, oh, huh, I'm reacting from my like limbic primal, whatever brain. Right. And I'm just going to freak out about this. But if you can take a deep breath and be like, okay, I'm going to transfer that into my prefrontal cortex and my conscious thinking, you have a different opportunity for how you are going to, you know, address that situation. You know, even when you're escalating with your kids and you're yelling at them, if I yell at you and you yell at me and I yell at you and you yell at me, like all of that is just creating more of this. Whereas yeah. if I'm like, which my poor 10 year old, I'm like, come here and let's take a deep belly breath together <laughs> when we're about to have a fight. We have a very different conversation afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, yeah. that's like a very small example, but it's like that at the micro is that at the macro, which is what we talk about in the book, you know, the 
little big world, little world, like it exists in all the places. Another big common thread throughout your book was this whole microcosm, macrocosm thing, which I think is uh, quite beautiful. Maybe you could expand on that. Yeah. What does I mean, that mean? So, so at, at the most basic level, right? Yeah, this idea that everything that like, like inside and outside are related, right? Everything that we are within ourselves kind of reflects and has impact upon and, and is sort of interwoven with our outside world. I mean, if we talk about it in the ancient context, right? I mean, it kind of gets into these religious and these philosophical systems about how, you know, we sort of thought the world was put together. Um, for me, it was really cool to sort of compare um, how this idea shows up in the Indian yoga context versus in some of these like sort of ancient Western spiritual contexts, so like the ancient Greek philosophy and all that kind of stuff, right? Where they actually in very similar ways thought about quite a lot more literally than we might talk about it today, kind of the human body, right? As the microcosm, literally a little world onto itself um, and being analogous to the universe as the macrocosm. So not only kind of materially, right? The human body is kind of made of, of the same stuff as the universe. And so you can kind of explain the relationships that way, but also what does it mean for us to kind of get somewhere within ourselves um, versus how is that reflected in the outside world, right? If there's, if there's a heavenly realm or something that we ultimately wanna get to, right? From a sort of pre-modern religious perspective, um, what does that mean, right? If everything's really all one, um, shouldn't that be somehow related to our journey within the self, to our psychological journey, to what's going on with the various parts of the body? Um, and again, you see that popping up, not even just kind of, you know, India and then, you know, the ancient uh, Hellenic world, but you see that in all sorts of places around the world, this, this notion that um, everything is interconnected, everything corresponds, um, everything kind of like works through these systems of, of analogies. Um, but I think we were able to sort of carry that into the modern context, right, where it also, like, there's a kind of inside outside, like, well, right, and like what's happening socially and historically and in the world is not separate from what's also happening in your personal practice and the way that you're viewing your personal practice, right, there's this <laughs> French philosophical term that I really love, it's modern, but it's, it's called habitus, and it's like, essentially, it's your socialized subjectivity, so it's like how you view the world is still yours and it's you have your subjective points of view, but that can never exist apart from like the macro of sort of the world in which you are living, that you're born. I mean, we're seeing this even with like what's happening everywhere in the world today and how that is being and how identities are even being more reaffirmed because there's like less uh being sure of what we are. So we're finding more and more of like, I, this is my world and I'm creating it. And this is what I think is true and that kind of idea, right? And that exists at the micro and then you're seeing that play out on the macro as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that that, so, that sort of metaphor exists for yoga as well, as well as exists for like trying to interpret yoga today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, our broader world, right? Did they talk about just the, the impact of the thoughts on the macro? Oh, very much. Yeah, like you have this whole, uh, the uh, Indra's net, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right? Like you pull one thread of the net, Indra being the God, the, uh, then he carries this huge net and one thread and everything goes. So it's like, everything is interconnected. You cannot, just like we said, karma and vibrations, like my vibrations don't just affect me, but they affect you. And then what you do affects them. And then there's, you know, that idea of we're all in it together, yoga, huge union. Um, and, and that, that real, like true sense of interconnectivity that I think, especially in the modern sort of individualistic, you know, world, it's really hard for us to think about ourselves as truly connected to somebody on the other side of the world. And then at the same time, because of the internet, we're finding ourselves connected in ways that we never would have even imagined before. So it is this very interesting dialogue that we can have with yoga and connection and also like micro and macro and also responsibility to who and for what. 
Yeah. Well, and we don't think about, you know, necessarily in a literal way, the human body is being built the same way as the solar system anymore, right? That's just kind of not how we analyze bodies or or solar systems. Um, but in, a, in some sense, we still have all those same layers to how we kind of, I think, conceptualize this macrocosm microcosm relationship. I mean, you know, we could talk about from sort of a modern metaphysical perspective, really, what is the relationship between, you know, sort of the self and matter, right? Like we could go down that rabbit hole, um, but we could talk about it on kind of an individual level and an interpersonal level. You know, we could think about kind of the, the little world of what does it mean to be well within my body versus what does that mean for sort of our wellness as, you know, as a social group, as a, as a culture, as a, as a society in general, we could talk about social justice, right? And how, yeah, are not only like our kind of vibrations, but like literally our actions, right? Always affect mm -hmm. everything around us, no matter how small they might seem. Uh, I mean, right, we, we could, we could keep going out and out. We could talk about political systems, like all this stuff still sort of works but what's interesting and i think points back to like the yoga and points back to the the sort of pieces we can do all of that but it seems to or from what i've found from reading like when you read these great people that spent their whole life being mystics or philosophers or yogis or whatever that they all go back to you need to understand all of that but it has to start with you <laughs> like you got to get right with yourself right like i think it was gandhi I, I went out to try to change the world and then i realized i first had to change myself Mm -hmm. Right. And so it is that real, like it is the micro is the macro because you can't really make change in the world until you actually do that sort of self work, which um, I think is part of yoga as well as part of sort of the sister science of Ayurveda <laughs> and understanding what that means to be whole. Yeah. And there's a lot of science to back that up now, you know, mm -hmm. through these, you know, the older weak, ultra weak biophotons, you know, these photon emissions that we're producing, you're familiar with those and how we produce these information photons of light that are, we, that this body is a receiver and a transmitters of thousands of them per second. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. And, and these, these photons have recently been studied to carry not only information within our body, but outside of our body and they carry impression or intention. So they've actually been shown to be the mechanism for why prayer works, you know, and there's coherent biophoton emissions and there's incoherent ones. Coherent ones would be ones when you, when you take action from that bow that's really still in a meditative calm yeah. yogic state where you're in union. Right. And the incoherent ones that don't have any effect on the whole prayer benefit thing um, because you're, they're incoherent. They're as a result of free radical damage and things like that. <laughs> But these, but these biophotons are, are real and they're offering a mechanism for this thing. I never heard of that. I didn't, I didn't, your book was so massive. I didn't read every page, um, but I will, because it's, I, and I, it'll be on my bedstand for a while. Um, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> but that Indra's net thing, that's what Indra's net is. You can't, you know, Einstein talked to called the spooky action at a distance. It was this, this instantaneous, you know, effect, you know, of, of changing particles at great distances, right? And that's what Ayurveda talks about as well as the, the cause of disease, which comes at the junction between consciousness and matter. And when the matter forgets that it's consciousness, that's the mistake of the intellect where the, where the parts become independent or separate or have forgotten their root of con in consciousness. They, they forget the whole. And that's the whole point of Ayurveda is to restore the memory of pure consciousness into the parts which is what biophotons do. Photons are particles of light. And by definition, they're both waveform or they're particles. They can be both. So they exist at the junction between part of consciousness and matter. So if you can put your attention on that, which you now can do with your own intention, if it's pure and have an effect at that level, it's like, oh my God, the science of this Vedic idea of how we heal at a deep level Ayurvedically has now been proven. But you were excited about the biophotons, Krista. Tell me more. No, I'm just excited about the just the science, how the science is sort of able to back up and look at. And because that is our current like myth or framework, we have a whole chapter on myth in there too, of like the way that we view the world, right? It helps that now we have Columbia and Harvard and Stanford and you're, we have institutions and places that are taking a look at this from these. And not only are they taking a look at it, but it's validating it in really mm -hmm. wonderful ways that I would say is going to help yoga in the future be able to be really part of an integrative, holistic, 
health system in all sorts of spaces and places, and especially post, you know, COVID, what we're still going through, like, we're going to need all of the health and wellness mm -hmm. and ways and tools um, and ways of reaching people that is going to make sense of for them to buy in, right? And some of that is this some people are going to be like the photon thing is so cool. And some people are going to cling, you know, cling to the spiritual stuff. And, you know, but I, I just, I think it's very, I think it's a very interesting and exciting time to sort of be in the yoga space and see how all of these ancient texts are being, you know, verified and validated in our, our way of the way we look at the world, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I find all this stuff fascinating. Um, and I think to some extent, right. Like, like what's to me, what's most fascinating about it is, is these, like kind of the different ways of essentially approaching the same reality, right? How we regarded the world a couple of thousand years ago um, and how we regard it today. And, and to some extent, like not even looking at only the differences, but the commonalities, um, you know, when people talked about these energies, you know, when they talked about whether it's, you know, um, Numa, right? Or Spiritus in the West, or whether it's Prana um, and Indian yogic systems, like kind of what they meant when they said that, um, and what, so like they were talking about something, right? Um, so what, what do we call that something today, right? And maybe we call it like biophotons or uh, I, my first book was on Paramahansa Yogananda. And so he had this term life trons um, that he liked to use for like the particles of prana, right? Um, and to some extent, it's like, we're all discussing the same stuff. It's just that depending on our frameworks and depending on our time periods and like kind of how much we know and how we know it, mm -hmm. um, right? Like what are our like systems of knowledge? Like we come up with all these different, like these concepts and these terms to describe it, but like, it's like, we're still kind of chipping yeah. away, right? At that core, language like, could never do justice to sort of the magic, I think of uh, yeah. maybe the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. what's actually happening. Yeah. Like you said, it keeps changing, like prana, for example, like, you know, the modern take on prana is sort of life force, right? This kind of life force. But when you when and I've read some some uh, yogic texts um, who and uh, who swear that what Patanjali, you know, meant by prana and what what the Hatha Yoga Pradipika meant by prana was breath and that pranayama was the breath holding and it wasn't actually pranayama if you didn't actually do kumbhak or breath retention where now it's like prana is life force and it's everywhere but it, and i guess it it can mean both it can mean both right mm -hmm. um but um that was something that i wonder what your take did you did you take away the original um definition of pranayama to mean um you know breath with retention or what was your take on that? Well, it, I mean, even even in the, you know, like we say original or historical, but even then it kind of, it varies, right? And okay. I, I, well, if we want to talk about Patanjali, right? I mean, Patanjali's, like the original sutras are like very cryptic actually, right? And so like most of what we know about Patanjali is Patanjali with the commentary by Vyasa, Vyasa. right? Which is already kind of it's a layered thing. And then of course there are later commentators that come along that interpret kind of like, well, yeah, what is pranayama really? Um, in a way that like that fits their system. Um, and so, so yes, to some extent, right? It kind of, it again, it matters what your goal is. Um, why does the, why does the breath with retention matter? Well, if you're in this kind of ascetic dualistic spiritual system, then it matters because retention really means kind of like, like stopping the breath, um, and making it this sort of internal thing that then allows you to sort of like decouple consciousness in the body. It's again, it's that idea of like, like, well, stop acting. Um, but if you're thinking about it from a more tantric perspective, um, and you're thinking about transforming the body, well, Kumbhaka might still be important, but it's more kind of like, like almost like building Power up that energy, exactly. right, within the body to produce this kind of the explosive, like kind of raising of, of that energy. Um, and so it's still maybe retention, right, but retention with a, with a different purpose. Um, or you could look at other systems where, well, it's not retention at all, right, it is more about this kind in a circulation um, of energy. So, so to me, again, like I, I actually kind of really enjoy that it's messy yeah. um, and that there are different ways of approaching it, right? And like maybe not everybody is on the same road um, and that all of it is sort of valid in its own right, even though it doesn't necessarily agree 
um, it just kind of matters what you're trying to accomplish. Well, and if you look at like the correlative like idea of spirit, right? Like mm-hmm. the word for spirit and breath, like yeah, do we yeah, mean yeah. breath or do we mean spirit? And if we mean spirit versus breath, what exactly are we saying? And so right. I think it's almost that same. What does it mean to say those are the same thing? Exactly, versus... or that they're different yeah. or like where does the line, you know, because if spirit and breath or if breath is life force and the first mm-hmm. thing you do when you're born is take a breath and the last thing you do when you die is not breathe, then what is the correlation there too? So I think it is kind of an interesting that you can have both conversations and both can be true in different situations for different reasons and also be able to have these sort of messy dialogical conversations about them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't bode well for the, for the, for the, those who come out and say, well, this is the way and I have the, yeah. I have. You will not find that for well. us. So. <laughs> Yeah, your book pretty much disputed all that. So you yeah. say, well, I'm sorry, have you read this? Because that's you can't go there anymore. Right. Uh, it's it's too messy, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, fascinating, fascinating discussion. Another area of uh, what would you say um, interest for folks is gurus, and you talk mm-hmm. a lot about that. Um, that's a juicy area, also messy. Yes. So I wonder if you guys could dive into that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. You know, this is another one of those where I think it's really important that we both contextualize, historicize, and recognize where these concepts and ideas and what these practices looked like, you know, in different time periods for different people. And then I think it's also really important. And part of this work was like to do both, like to recognize the importance of the guru in this tradition, to recognize how important they've been in the, the you know, passing on of tradition and lineage also to recognize what it means to be a guru and what it means to have charismatic authority and what it means to have power and not to shy away from the recognition that oftentimes power does lead to abuse. And this has not been something that has not happened within the yoga tradition either. So it's really both looking at how we've gotten you know, to today in terms of the complexities of modern practice and looking at some of the main gurus that have been part of that, whether they're from like the more physical yoga traditions or the more transcendental meditative traditions um, and those kind of really interesting stories. And then also to say, you know, most of these people did some not great stuff because they're also human and we have to recognize how systems of power and structures of power function so that in the future, maybe we can do better when we give people uh, authority or let them take that seat of really walking them that down that path from darkness to light, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did it change over time? Hey, hang on one second. Yeah. Did it change over time? Was the role of a guru back in the sort of Vedic days, you know, sort of the the, the local religious priest who took the the young people and trained them up and gave them gave them you know a deeper understanding of life and spirituality, but also helped them grow in, and become functional in the world. And when, and if that's true, when did it transition to be the mega guru where they have 10,000 people at a rally and, and they're the massive money-making thing that happens today? Did, yeah. did, is that a fair assessment? And when did it change? Yeah, I would say that changed. I mean, I'd say there's a couple really like, if you want to look at history, there's a couple moments where you would say that this is the moment that it went from very much the idea of having a guru as not only your teacher, but really your moral guide for how you should live your life. And oftentimes you would live with them and they would be beholden in in the frameworks that they had of of really standing up for that being like, you know, I remember one of the, I can't remember what scholar it was, but his guru basically was like, I didn't write a book because you were my book, right? It was the idea Mm -hmm. that's that really true passing along of knowledge and study for your whole life with somebody. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, Oh, you have Muktananda in the 1960s and you have the Beatles in India with, uh, you know, and those two moments really being the moments where you have the popularization of a guru as this sort of trans historical meta whatever figure you have Muktananda in, in Aspen and I think it was 1963 you know, awakening people's kundalini with Shaktipat with a peacock feather, where before like something like Shaktipat or that trans, you know, transference of power and um, would be something that would only happen between a guru and their one student in a very specific setting. And then this was like, 
come to this convention center and I'm going to awaken everybody and we're going to see what happens, you know, Mm -hmm. so different. And I I feel like that's at that moment, I'd say around 19, the turn of the century, but really by the 1960s, it was a very different idea of the guru. Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of like, none of this stuff exists in a bubble, right? So asking that question is really not all that different from asking like, when did we get kind of full on like globalized, you know, like mass pop culture, um, right? And like, not that it it didn't necessarily kind of pop out in one moment, right? But there are these like kind of coalescing um, examples that even in, in other venues we can think of where it's like, well, this is, you know, this is when like our culture changed because like people sat together and they watched like the moon landing or something, right? And everybody had this collective experience that just wouldn't have been possible even 50 years beforehand, much less, you know, 500 years beforehand. Um, and I think like one thing that I always spend a lot of time thinking about is like, like, how do we how do we kind of have the both and how do we um, appreciate mm-hmm. like sort of tradition right without giving it sort of maybe too much power um, and how do we recognize like kind of the validity of of maybe both modes right mm-hmm. and also the potential problems inherent within both modes you know I think I think these you know kind of like modern guru systems have certainly like their problematics of power right and and if we really want to talk about those we have to talk about them in terms of kind of the 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 mass like kind of global mm-hmm. like the the cap like all of those layers of it the kind of power that can be abused um in that kind of framework versus like I think it would be incorrect to say that well you know before that was a thing everything was like kind of golden and rosy um it's just that like the problems would have been different mm-hmm. because the structures and the institutions and the systems were different. It's like, well, capitalism has problems, but like feudalism had its own problems, <laughs> right? Like, like this kind of like traditional teacher-student relationship would have had its own dangers. It's just that they would have been different mm-hmm. from like what we see today. And because, you know, people's ethical systems would have been different and people's ways of controlling abuse would have been different. Like it just, it would have kind of operated um, in, in a way that maybe is not the way that we do it now. Um, but again, like people are people. Um, right. And systems are systems and like powers, power. yeah, powers, yeah. power. <laughs> yeah. We, I guess that's the one thing that the human mind seems to be attracted to is power. And I guess during that transitional period, as you said, Krista, there was access to that, right. that power though there, there, there wasn't, as you said, yeah, Anna, like there wasn't really access to that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Catholic Church had access to it, and you know that didn't go well for them. You know, yeah, the whole, not for the anybody, whole right? thing was a disaster, it's right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's still going, but there. I mean, they had a rough, they had some rough water there, but that was because they didn't have the information age. No one knew what was really going on behind closed doors. But anyway, it's another story. Um, but I guess that's a that was the part that that I always felt like you know these gurus are they really in it to help do what the original guru concept was, which was to help inspire and empower these young people to be great, you know, humans on the planet, as opposed to having a group of people who devote all their energy attention on you, the guru. Right. Is that it about was the part that, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was like the shift. The guru was like, we're going to help you become successful in the world and spiritual, carry the, take, carry the eye of the storm into the winds of the storm. So you become, you know, more productive, but your source is in something pure and unattached and beautiful and sattvic, mm-hmm. as opposed to the gurus of today, whether they try to do it or not, everybody just gives their whole life to them, which is, of course, something that can be good. Don't de- devoting and devotion, I think, is a great thing. But at some point, you'd want us to you know, start taking these people and turning them into incredible beams of light on the planet. They can go change the world as opposed to, you know, serving you know, the master sort of a thing. That's been frustrating for me to watch over the years. And I feel like these really, really beautiful people somehow never get to be as beautiful and as powerful for the right reasons powerful as they could be because somebody else had to carry the light. Uh, And they were were only allowed to carry light and anybody who challenged that light was out. That's a problem. Yeah. And it's like, how did you become a guru? Like, I think that's something that we need to, especially in our sort of, current mode think about right did you get become a guru because you have 200 
or 2 million followers on Instagram because you can do a handstand in a bikini or do you, which is fine if you can do that too, or did you become this because you've done the actual work and the reflection and the study and, you know, gleaned the experiential wisdom that you actually have something to pass on to somebody and to be that sort of lighthouse for them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is your intention of becoming a, you know, a leader, right? Is it to serve your ego and to get likes or is it to truly be of service to the world because it's not about you? And I think that those are mm -hmm. questions that, you know, we need to ask ourselves like in the, like, sort of modern guru like, context. Yeah. <laughs> talking about the solar system, not that we're supposed to be exactly like the solar system. I, I get that, Anna, you're right. But, but the sun is a great model for, you know, things spinning around it. And, uh, and um, it sits still and doesn't really need anything from us. And it just gives everything to us. And I feel like if that's what a guru is supposed to represent, then that's what a guru should represent. They should how they just give and don't get. Um, and I don't think that's always the way it is. So, you know, it would be one, one of my caveats when I teach my kids with six kids is, you know, just be careful of the, you know, the intention of people because uh, a lot of them are, really truly giving and loving and caring for no reason. And some of them have an agenda exactly. and you can get sucked into that. And in the yoga world, you know, it's, it's out there, but it's also in the religious world too. I mean, none, none of these were perfect. You know, like you said, it's messy everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like yoga is particularly bad. Humans are particularly have some karma to take yeah, action. Particularly to problematic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yoga, you know, I think of like Ravana, for instance, right? Like Ravana was this like great ascetic, whatever, but he couldn't get over his ego. And because he couldn't get over his ego, he ended up being this demon, right? And it's like, you can be on the path forever, mm -hmm. but if you let your, your ego take over, you become like the complete opposite of you fight against the light, if you will, right? Just by nature of, of not actually being yogic because if you're actually a, a yoga guru then you would have ego removal and you would be doing it to shine your light and be of service not so that people could be in service to you right well none of this stuff is new right like abuse isn't new like no. people like 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 clinging to power isn't new um but i think it is interesting to think about the ways that in our kind of global like hyper connected culture like especially now with the internet right i mean this would have even been different like in the 60s um, just because we didn't have that level of connectivity that ability for somebody who really wants to kind of put themselves at the center to reach so many different people um, it's not that like like the basic impulses i think are the same right but the impact that one yeah, can have today um, with all the new tools the technology that we have at our disposal i mean i think i think there is something to be said for the fact that like there's there's a difference in in scope mm -hmm. right and scale mm -hmm. um with modern gurus versus what it would have looked like in a more pre-modern context for sure yeah and it's a little bit scary when you think about all the you know the the misinformation age that we live in you know today where where anything on the internet somehow is believable by exactly. enough enough people to make a pretty impact impressive dent in our society then um you know it makes it a little bit scary about the people who are you know just peddling self-interest out there we have to be a bit careful about that but like you said it was probably back then but only you know dented a little village versus now it's denting you know a big chunk of the world it's uh, really really quite fascinating well you guys again once again this book called this is this yoga you have to read it you have to have this book um just because it belongs in your library it belongs on your bedside table you pick it up you read you know a few pages or a chapter before you go to bed and you it'll just keep you know you know digging the hole deeper in your in your understanding of what yoga really is it's just a really beautiful book. I want to thank you guys for for sharing writing this book. It must have taken a long time to write this book, and the research you must have done. <laughs> it took a hot second. Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take to write this book? When did we get two thousand eighteen? Oh, yeah, I mean, like the actual writing of it. You know, probably yeah. What was that like? 
from 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 outline to manuscript like two or three years but you know i think for both of us this has really been kind of the labor of a lifetime right because it draws on our dissertations yeah. it draws on we've all both been thinking about it for so long you know i make this joke it's like by the time that i finished writing like my portions of this book like i finally felt ready for my doctoral exams because <laughs> i was like oh okay now yeah. <laughs> like the stuff that i was doing five years ago like now it makes sense yeah so no wow. I was, yeah it, putting it all together yeah yeah and 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 like and and it was yeah hard and took a while but also I think was a very rewarding experience for both mm -hmm. of us mm -hmm. because it allowed us to both sort of do our thing <laughs> like she's the historian I'm sort of the more modern and then it also allowed us to really share with with all of you you know what we have sort of spent lifetimes thinking about and hopefully ways that are you know, digestible and then gives you space to go again, do your own research, do your own sort of self-study on it. Mm -hmm. So now you know, the other thing I'm going to tell you about this book is that, you know, a lot of times you write a book with two with co-authors, you can tell where where one author left off and the other one started. And you guys wove a beautiful web. Like I couldn't really tell like who was writing what, you know what I mean? It was just really completely. <laughs> Same voice throughout the whole thing. It was just beautifully done, you know, and, and now, now I'm talking to you. I realize that, you know, we both had different roles to play, but yeah, really well done. Beautiful book. Uh, I wish you all the best. And I hope it I hope that this really becomes kind of, the, the, you know, the gold standard for, you know, yoga study and and, uh, you know, in universities around the world, because this is the book, the best book I've ever written, seen about this that, you know, is, that is in English so we can really understand and just just really well done, well referenced, and uh, it'll be on my bedside table for a long time. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you both. Wow, what an honor, and I really appreciate that. Yes, very much appreciate you and the work that you do, and thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. That really is so just heart. Yeah, like you made, made, made our week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.